Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. One of our favorite states on the American Shoreline, uh, Tyler, is Louisiana. Um, Absolutely. We have a great show out of Louisiana, of course, Delta Dispatches with Jacques Bear and Simone Malaz. We do. And uh, they always keep us up to date on what's happening in Louisiana. And they're pumping right now. Let they, me just say that they have been putting out regular awesome content for the past, I don't know, six weeks or so. Just, it's a great time to be a Delta Dispatches listener. It is. And, and, and there's so much and so much, so many reasons we should pay attention to Louisiana. I think the state with the most aggressive, comprehensive shoreline management program in the United States billions of dollars on the table, significant coastal management issues, many of which relate to the Mississippi River and the Mississippi River Delta. And we're going to be taking a deep dive into one of the biggest water management and river management issues uh, in Louisiana. And that has to do with the river diversions, uh, the upper river diversions and the management of the Bonnie Carey Spillway, which pours into Lake Pontchartrain. So We've got an expert to take us down some of the management questions that are being faced there. That I'm, so I'm really looking forward to this show. It's uh, oftentimes when we're thinking about the coast, we are obviously thinking about the ocean as the dominant water feature. But yeah. uh, around the American shoreline, uh, whether it's a small inlet, a lagoon, a bay, uh, or the mighty Mississippi, uh, which is you know such a major feature on the North American continent, it only makes sense that where this river exits uh, the continent and flows into the ocean, that we would have a major feature on the American shoreline. And right there sits New Orleans. There sits the Louisiana coast. And they are having to figure out how to manage this space. And uh, we have a scientist with us today, Peter, and we're going to dive into some of the -the state-of-the-art thinking as to what's going on. Yep. So joining us today is going to be Dr. Devani Carr. She is a senior manager and scientist for the Environmental Defense Fund. And she's a great guest for this discussion because the Environmental Defense Fund teamed up with Tulane University to examine the possibility of using upper river diversions. And by these, we mean just upriver from New Orleans within the state of Louisiana, but using upper river diversions on the Mississippi River to better manage flood flows coming down the Mississippi River and impacting the habitat on the coast. Huge pulses of freshwater are great in a lot of cases, but they can do some things that are not so great and really affect habitat quality, uh, fisheries, and communities. So Right now, one of the major flood diversion management uh, operations is the Bonnie Carey Spillway, which diverts water from the Mississippi River main stem into Lake Pontchartrain, an important habitat area. And those diversions are causing some negative impacts, and uh, Tulane and EDF teamed up to take a closer look at the management strategy and whether new upper river diversions might be helpful. That's That's the overview. Um, and just real quickly, facts on the table, the Bonnie Carey Spillway, uh, as I said, pours into Lake Pontchartrain. It has been opened 16 times since 1937, but four times since March 2018. As climate change and rainfall patterns have changed and the amount of water that floods down the Mississippi is getting more precarious to manage, Tyler, so that's the situation we're going to be talking about. Well, tell us about our guest. So, uh, Dr. Devani Carr, Senior Manager and Scientist at EDF, 
uh, one of the principal players in the development of this upriver analysis. So uh, looking forward to talking to her about this study. As am I, Peter. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, hello, Dr. Carr. Welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Tyler. I hope that that overview was reasonably accurate. Do you have anything to add or change? (laughs) No, I think that sums it up pretty much, but I can explain further. Well, tell us why this is an important issue for the Environmental Defense Fund to get involved with. Uh, Introduce us to the organization's interest in the issue and why this study was undertaken. Absolutely. So um, Environmental Defense Fund, uh, along with a few other nonprofits, um, have been working in Louisiana on coastal issues for a long time. Uh, We are part of a coalition called the Mississippi River Delta Coalition, and it involves three national nonprofits and two local nonprofits. Um, EDF has an extensive program uh, on climate, as you're aware, on coastal issues. Um, But one of the biggest focuses in Louisiana has been coastal restoration until now. But we are realizing with changing climate and uh, increasing um, rainfall intensity, sea sea level rise, um, there there are more critical issues that are coming up right now, and they have to be taken care of urgently. Um, This particular study, actually, the idea came about right after the um, 2019 floods. There were two back-to-back flooding events, um, which we call high water events here, where the Bonnicari Spillway, as you explained, um, it had to be open and the water had to be let out to um, the Pontchartrain, uh, Lake Pontchartrain area. Now, what it does is really, this is a mechanism where you open these gateways and it reduces the flood effects downstream, which is where almost 2 million of people, uh, people in Louisiana live. Um, but what's happening is with these frequent openings of Bonikari Spillway, we're realizing that um, there's a lot of fresh water that gets into the eastern part of um, Louisiana as well as Mississippi coast. And we did see there it impacted because of the reducing salinity because of the um, fresh water. It's reducing their, it's impacting their fisheries as well as uh, it's creating a lot of uh, detrimental impacts to the ecosystem there. So this study really came about because we were wondering how best to utilize um, the diversions, the upper diversions, which were part of the 2017 master plan but they really hadn't made much progress as to you know, the feasibility of planning. So they're conceptual, um, uh, conceptual diversions right now. So what we did was we looked at, um, with our modeling team from Tulane, um, it's led by Dr. Ehab Maselli of Tulane. So what we did was we looked at first how we can manage the water. And that was a phase one of the study. 
And what we found was when um, the AMA and the union divergence, if these were uh, operate, operating when um, the flood situation happens, um, the reduction in the volume of water that would go through Bonnie Carey was almost 60%. 60, wow. I mean, that's wow. huge, right? Fantastic. It's more than half um, reduction. And we saw that because of this reduction, the um, salinity impacts were actually much less. So once we completed the water uh, control analysis, <laughs> the water management analysis, we started looking at what we call the phase two of the study. We started looking at what other benefits there could be, you know, what we call LANIAP in Louisiana. And we saw that um, at least with the salinity, there was a drastic um, decrease in the freshening of the water. Um, so when we did our study, initially when we saw that the salinity was, you know, during the flood events would be say five ppt. However, when we modeled these, the study, um, we saw that when we use these um, features for the diversions, uh, the salinity stayed above 10 ppt. And this is just running one scenario, right? So we are actually looking at other scenarios where um, it would depend on how we operate these two diversions. Dr. Carr, can I, can I interrupt you for a second and request, sure. mm -hmm. request a, a, a quick timeout? Because I'm trying to understand, just I'm trying to generate a picture in my mind as to what's mm -hmm. happening. And, and you're, you are covering a tremendous amount of uh, ground here. <laughs> um, but uh, so, so what I understand you saying is that there's a way to divert, potentially divert, um, water from the Mississippi River as it flows out to the sea, divert it up, up river from the Bonnie Carey diversion. And right. that by doing that, uh, the amount of water that would then have to go into Lake Pontchartrain would be less, and that would have a tremendous benefit potentially on the fishery there and the broader ecosystem. So let Correct. me ask a, just a broad question. These other uh, more, uh, I guess, upriver diversions, where would they go? I mean, would they present flooding problems or, or do how would that work? So that's the beauty of this uh, idea is these um, diversions, they would divert water into the uh, Moropa Swamp as well as the Upper Barataria Basin and within Louisiana. Um, what's happening here is we actually need that freshening in Louisiana because uh, we have these coastal forests, we have marshes, and they are all getting, uh, they're deteriorating because of the saltwater intrusion. So it actually, the benefit is then you're getting fresh water where it's needed and reducing the fresh water from where it's not needed, which is Lake Pontchartrain and Mississippi coast. So what happens is when these, um, the diverge, diversion, diverting these um, waters, fresh waters above um, upriver of Bani Kari, uh, the nutrient, the sediment, and all the associated benefits that goes with these diversions is actually kept in Louisiana. So we call it really a win-win situation. I was, I was going to use that exact phase. Of course, this is the win-win. As you said, uh, the freshwater needs to go into certain areas that are too salty, uh, that mm -hmm. are affecting uh, forests and other coastal habitats that uh, uh, saltwater intrusion is detrimentally affecting. Uh, and then to reduce the amount of fresh water into Pontchartrain, win, win, way to go, good thinking. Uh, the one thing I want to make sure our listeners understand is 
Why is it important to reduce the amount of water in, in high flood situations coming down the Mississippi River? Uh, and what is the objective of diversions, generally speaking? Um, so for the water management aspect of it, um, what it does is really reduces the flood stage, which means if you have high water events coming down on Mississippi, it can spill over which means flooding in areas like uh, New Orleans and Greater New Orleans and other, you know, the, uh, um, the parishes which align next to the river. Um, so aside from the flooding, um, we do know that the river has been cut off, right, through all the engineering over the years. Yes. So what we're really trying to do with these diversions is reconnect the river to its wetlands and coastal forests where it's actually, you know, over thousands of years. That's how the Delta was formed, and that's how these areas were, the habitats and the ecosystem was formed. Right. So that's really the purpose of these diversions. Um, the way the state looks at diversions is mainly two goals. One is the freshwater, and one is sediment. And most of them actually have both, uh, both the benefits included, but it just really kind of depends on what's the main focus of that diversion. And so for these diversions, it's really the water management. I understand. Control. That makes sense. So the, I think it's, yeah, I think most of our listeners uh, are familiar with the engineering, broadly speaking, of the lower Mississippi River and the construction of levees, the channelization, the simplification of the... I mean, look at it on the map, right? Yeah. It doesn't look, when you look at like a, a natural river delta, it has a very distinctive, it, I mean, like Meander. a dovetail yeah. kind of thing where it, it spreads out almost 180 degrees on a, on a flat shoreline. 100%. And when you, and it kind of jets out and it braids. I mean, it's like really kind of like a peacock uh, fanning out. Yeah, very complex river, man, it, it, natural systems. It's, and we, we've channelized the hell out of it. And that is not the way it looks when you look at a map of uh, yeah. the Mississippi Delta. We're dumping all of the sediment off of the end of the crow's foot, the very out onto the continental shelf, because we funnel so much of the flow in the sediment out of uh, out of the river and off the end and into the continental shelf. Not good. So uh, the diversions help protect the levee system and the flood risk to the city of New Orleans and the lower river. Um, but really, I think, Dr. Carr, what you're talking about is not only is it a is it a flood risk management opportunity to to rethink the river uh, but it is important habitat relationships between freshwater inflow salinity are huge factors driving factors in the health of fisheries and therefore the health of the coastal economy and coastal communities um i got to think this is a great idea you say it's a win-win how is it being received is it likely th that uh this initiative will be executed um, so actually, it, it really gained traction after we finished the study and we kind of showed the initial benefits. That's the, you know, the major reduction in the floodwaters going through Bonnicari. Um, the uh, CPRA, which is Coastal Protection Restoration Authority, has actually picked up one of these diversions, the Union Diversion, and they are doing a, a feasibility and planning study. Um, to basically look at how to operate this diversion. So different uh, volume flows. So right now it's uh, designed in the master plan as uh, you know, a certain CFS going through these diversions. However, they want to look at the different locations where to site the diversion and how, you know, basically how to optimize 
um, the benefits from these diversions. So one is already on its way and we are advocating for the other one. We're again gaining traction because you know we show these benefits from these two diversions. So um, it, it, the outlook is great. I mean, I think it's, uh, it's something that you know, people as well as the government official, they understand. And we're also trying to explain to our um, Mississippi you know, state on our eastern side that this is actually going to impact them positively. You know, because that was one of the biggest concerns that Mississippi had is whenever we let out, open out the Bani Kerry spillway, um, their fisheries and their ecosystem was getting impacted. So this would definitely improve that situation and, uh, you know, improve for them and improve our wetlands for us. Win, win, win. I'm going to throw Mississippi into the winner's column over there too, <laughs> which I'm sure they'll appreciate. Uh, you talked earlier about the partnership with Tulane. Uh, Peter, you talked about it too. You introduced that beautifully. But uh, Tulane... Uh, leading kind of this modeling effort. Uh, and because my understanding, uh, Dr. Carr, is that these diversions that we're talking about have, I, I don't believe that they've been actually opened, right? This is all hypothetical, like computer modeling uh, that we're talking about in this study. And I would just really like to know how they do that. Uh, did they, How you know, you had some very specifics about... Um, what the uh, you know salinity and like Pontchartrain would be at you know sixty percent reduction blah blah blah, and uh, I would just love to understand kind of the science and how how that was accomplished. Correct. So um, there are two, um, like I said earlier, we had two phases of the study. The first study when we just looked at the water management. This was. Uh, uh, it's, it's just a model called HECRAS, which is uh, a course model, which, I mean, it's really a water budget kind of a model, right? So that's X amount of water comes in, you let out Y amount, what is left is going down, right? So that's the simplified version of it. Now for the phase two of the study, um, what we call a basin site study, um, it's a three-dimensional study. And we use um, a model called um, DELF3D. Um, this is a very, very um, complex and I guess uh, uh, really technical model that I call that I badass. Think, um, it's a badass model. You can explain this better than I can. But what it does is it looks at, um, again, the nutrients coming down. So you calculate how many, and nutrients, when I say nutrients, it's all the, you know, the fertilizers and all the nitrogen and all the phosphorus that's coming down the river which also creates uh, issues for algal blooms in the Gulf of Mexico. So what we're trying to look at is if X amount of that nutrient is taken out upriver uh, of Bonicari, then the reduction in the nutrient that's actually coming down to the Gulf of Mexico is it's pretty significant. And this, I mean, the assumption is this would help with the, you know, the hypoxia situation there. Um, Delta 3D also looks at water quality um, looks at, you know, temperature, oxygen, um, salinity, like we talked about earlier. And uh, finally, we're also looking at the sediment that's coming down the, uh, the river and how the sediment budget is impacted by these upper diversions because they are going to divert that sediment, uh, even though the focus of these diversions is not sediment or you know, marsh building, these are the benefits, the co-benefits as we call them. So the Delta-3 model is going to, again, create this kind of a budget that this much is coming down, how much goes out, what is 
you know, left. Very helpful. So, this... um, yeah, it, it, it's a model that's being used by scientists all over who are in coastal studies. And uh, it's, again, a model that I think once we have finished um, the complete calibration of the model, it, it, it's a very successful model that will be used by the core. I mean, they've shown interest. Um, and it could be something that could be used by other coastal states as well. Fantastic. The study is called Utilizing Upper Diversions in River Water Management Case Study 2019 Mississippi Floods Phase 2. This is a final report submitted to the Environmental Defense Fund from the uh, researchers at Tulane University, and the study was completed in January 2022. It was uh, uh, the second part, as you say, of a two-part study. Uh, For our listeners out there, We've been talking about diversions on the lower Mississippi a few times. It is a topic uh, for Simone Malaz and for Jacques on the Delta Dispatches show. There's been a lot of discussion and controversy about diversions on the lower river, uh, particularly the Mid-Barataria diversion proposal uh, and the Mid-Britain uh, diversion proposal uh, that this is not those this is not a discussion about those lower river diversions which as you point out are sediment management and marsh building diversions primarily these upper river diversions that you're talking about uh, are really distinct and I, I just want to make sure folks aren't confused by the idea that the, the all these diversion projects are sort of interconnected um, I do want to ask you, though, uh, it seems that the, the, the these kinds of changes in the Mississippi River management system are incredibly complicated to execute. Uh, the Corps of Engineers, of course, is a significant player along with the Coastal Protection Restoration Authority, uh, the state agency that leads up coastal uh, restoration efforts in the state. Um, what would it take to make greater use of the Union freshwater diversion and the AMA diversion, the two upriver diversion possibilities that you've mentioned? Do these diversion structures, is it a structure? Do they exist? Would something have to be built? What would it take to execute a greater use of upriver diversions? Um, so, yeah, right now they're conceptual diversions and they will have to be built. Um, and the structure would be probably at a smaller scale than the mid-river diversions, which are the mid-Barataria and mid-Breton. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we, we're looking at, uh, you know, future five to ten year at least kind of a scenario. Um, but, yes, there will be newer structures. Any and sen- what really... Mm-hmm. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, well, I, I, if you would include in, in, in your description, if there is a sense of cost of what these structures m- or, or describe what these structures may look like at this stage, if that's known. Um, I sense of cost. Now, that <laughs> that's a tricky one because. Uh, is it a lot? At- I think could that be the <laughs> yes, answer? Yes, it, it is. <laughs> it's a lot. I think <laughs> it is a lot, lot, lot that I, uh, I would probably say in the billions. I mean, just kind of looking at the mid uh, Barataria and mid Breton, they're mil- uh, a billion. I'm sorry, a billion plus mid uh, Barataria is almost a million and a, a billion and a half. I keep saying million because mm-hmm. that's what I'm more familiar with. A billion and a half inflation. Uh, right now. I'm telling you, and, <laughs> right? And similarly for Mid Breton, 
Uh, so these are massive structures, but they, they, the upper uh, diversions probably will not be as big. So the costs will be less, but it's really hard to uh, forecast uh, without getting the engineers involved and you know, knowing what the design looks like. But in, in the, uh, you know, the basic design is really you cut, have a cutout in the river and it's a channel that kind of comes out. So for the sediment diversions like Mid-Veritaria and Mid-Breton, um, what we're looking at is where you maximize the sediment, right? So if you have any um, sandbanks or any kind of areas where the sand collects while the river is flowing, those are the areas you would use. Whereas for the freshwater diversions, which AMA and Union are, these would be areas where we maximize the impact of the freshwater. So kind of looking at what kind of wetlands, what's the receiving area, um, you know, these will be built around. Um, so really, I can't give you an exact cost or, right. you know, even ballpark, but uh, I'm assuming it will be in the billion. It's it's right. a conceptual uh, uh, step. And what I, you know, Peter, I don't want to uh, uh, tangle up what you just straightened out because you did a real nice job of delineating the difference between the sediment projects that we have discussed on this show and, uh, th what these are, but in a way they mm -hmm. are connected in the sense that what we're dealing with is we're de-channelizing yeah. the Mississippi River, 100%. and they, these are from a pub, from a policy perspective. The concept here is to engineer mim in, uh, diversions to engineer a delta that more accurately or or it, it does a better job, more complex, more co more complex. Thinking about the ecosystem that's in the broader region, how it's all interconnected. What I think is interesting yeah. is because the other side of the coin that we have heard is just the just the dredge it, just like ignore these problems, just keep running the current. Um, I would say the the, the current thing, if you got to build the levees a little higher, you build them a little higher, but it's levees and dredging yeah. down at the tip, basically, of the of the river. Um, and I guess all, all the way throughout because it's all going to fill up. But the point is that like this is a these are different views. And Devyani, uh, as a scientist, as someone who um, I'd love to know, like your approach, do you think about um is it within bounds as a scientist to think about kind of the natural uh, flow of things uh, as a delta or are you know what's what's your approach there um so yeah this the approach actually with these diversions is like i said earlier um, mimicking the river right as it used to be uh, we can't really go back and remove all the levees because we have built settlements on these areas which were never really meant to uh, you know sustain uh, please the land there. Um, so with sea level rise and subsidence, we know these areas are very, very vulnerable. Um, so the approach is really to kind of, in a way, reverse engineer what has been done since the 50s and 40s, you know, the core building out these levees and kind of cutting off the river and putting it in a, so to speak, a straitjacket, right? So it just doesn't have a chance to get out of its banks. So right now what we're doing is we are using engineering methods to reconnect the river with these areas and that's the beauty of it is you know when when you talked about the dredging yes there are a lot of uh, restoration projects which are built with dredge material either offshore or from the river but the cost and the uh, life of these projects you know because the 
conditions are constantly changing, like you said, inflation. I mean, it, it's just something that has to be done again and again. And then you have a storm and everything washes out. And again, you have to start that process again. But what we're doing with these diversions is, is something that's utilizing the natural power of the river to you know, bring sediment down, to you know, bring fresh water. So we're trying to capture what it was, but again, we can't just do it in a natural way. So we call right. it a nature-based solution that it is a great infrastructure when you have these diversion gates and structure, but it's also using the river's natural feature. Yeah, the natural power and the and, and the dynamics of the river uh, are the key part of it, trying to restore some of that. Tyler, during the 20th century, as you know, on the coastal and coastal America, we we spent a lot of time uh, manipulating river systems. And I'll say just in comparison, the Everglades in Florida uh, was drained and the, the, the hydrology and the hydraulics of the entire southern florida part of the florida peninsula was redone uh, to advance agriculture and development and all of that that was all the 20th century this is the corps of engineers heyday of major public project investments and water management uh in the 21st century now where uh, what we're trying to do is undo a little bit of the damage and the consequences of these major engineering efforts uh while as you say dr carr having to recognize that we have uh, so we've, we've basically put ourselves in a position where we, we can't go back to the natural system, uh, but we can sort of undo some of the most damaging aspects of the simplified hydraulics and hydrology uh, projects that we undertook in the last hundred years. I mean, it, it just makes good sense to me. Um, have you heard from, um, this is a curious question, a little bit political, uh, it has to do with the Lieutenant Governor of Louisiana, Billy Nungasser, and uh, the, the Lieutenant Governor appeared at the ASBPA conference in, in New Orleans in October of last year, Tyler and I attended, and at the plenary session he addressed the, uh, the basically the coastal engineering community and coastal managers from around the country and really had a strong objection to the Mid-Barataria Diversion Project and the potential economic and environmental impacts of greater freshwater inflow into certain areas. This is a lower river diversion objection that he was raising. I'm just wondering if you've heard from the state leadership whether they are open to these upper river diversions at this point, have you have you got a sense of the receptiveness to this idea? Um, so the upper river diversions um, are not as um, I guess it's not as big of a political issue yet. Um, a because they haven't been designed, right? And B, um, currently the way we're looking at these river diversions are really bringing the freshwater to an area which is sustained by freshwater, right? So it's not kind of changing the whole salinity yeah. regime yeah. of these areas. Um, the mid diversions are definitely a lot more complex. Um, there, there's a lot of uh, pushback from, you know, the oyster uh, industry, some fishery, which are kind of more reliant on the brackish or saltier water. Yeah. Um, however, I think the biggest um, 
what we would say as coastal managers is if we don't do something now, we're going to lose it all anyway. Right. So you won't have these uh, resources if we don't do something now. So, yes, this will these diversions will have, uh, you know, phase where because of constructions, because of just the kind of beginning of these projects, there will be disturbance. And I think a lot of the opposition to these diversions are because of that. It's just kind of changing things. Right. Nobody wants a big change. Yeah. Um, however, in the long term, and then we've all looked at the coastal, um, you know, the master plan has this famous red maps, right, where you see the sea level change, uh, scenarios and how pretty much all our coast is lost in the next 50, 100 years if we don't do anything. So. I think the biggest, uh, you know, the state officials, at least CPRA, and what we are trying to, uh, we're trying to um, make sure that people understand that, yes, there are going to be growing pains, but without these, what's, what's left? We don't have a coastline to speak of after mm. if we don't do any of these projects. It's why the situation on the Louisiana coast is so compelling from kind of a national perspective, Peter. It's why we pay such close attention to it. It's that uh, with the investment that Louisiana is making, it is uh, the, these projects do cost billions of dollars. <laughs> That's no joke. Whether we're talking about New York, whether we're talking about Boston, we're talking about Miami, whether we're talking about the Houston Ship Channel, whether we're talking about uh, how to manage the Mississippi yeah. River or, you know, all around the American shoreline, these projects, this is what this is what that NOAA climate change report just indicated is this that, week. Yeah, is is that the the costs of adaptation all over the place are going to be enormous. And so um, I just think it's really excellent. And, and Deviani, you said something really, I think, that our audience will really appreciate and that will resonate with them, which is as coastal planners and as coastal managers i mean how many of of y'all out there are staring down this barrel of sea level rise and the good news is we actually do have some good science we do have some pretty good technique uh that is being either already investigated or in this case being modeled i mean that's some new technology right there peter i mean yeah. when our ancestors i'll say when you know a hundred years ago let's just say they you know they they are pouring concrete and doing they didn't have computer modeling they were spitballing is what they were doing they, <laughs> they were did their best they did no they it's actually lack remarkable of, lack of sophistication I, in terms of understanding the consequences that's i'm fair. not poo-pooing it that's I'm, a fair criticism i i think, I, I, I've, I've said it before on the show that my grandfather took my father to the hoover dam took the whole family, drove them there. They were proud Americans to witness what American yeah. ingenuity and yeah. will could do, stop a river. That was a, 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 a thing of pride. And what was interesting to me, getting to your political question, Deviani, I'll, 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 I'll be right back to you, <laughs> but like, what's interesting to me is can, will Louisiana get behind, like as, from a pride perspective, the fact that their state is really leading the way here? And that these are really innovative potential uh, projects. And that you have people like Devyani who are super qualified and uh, it basically visioning a path forward that is better than just surrender. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Devyani, are you pretty, are you pumped up for that? Are you feeling the, the wind in your sails as, as we <laughs> do, you, as we confront, uh, as you say, I mean, really we have to do, inaction is, is a, is a no go. We got to do something. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is something we're all so proud of, right? I mean, Louisiana has been kind of at the forefront of a climate change, but we've also kind of taken the reins in our hands and just with the coastal master plans. I mean, no other state has endeavored, at least until now, uh, a sophisticated science base and not just, you know, scientists from the state or the country. I mean, we have international scientists who have contributed to these models. We have, we use IPCC and the NOAA models for sea level rise. Um, so yes, absolutely. I think we all who had some small part or big part in, uh, you know, this, so to speak, a revolution of coastal management. Yeah. Uh, we're we very proud. Fair. I mean, this is, uh, you know, when you kind of are doing this, you don't think about it much, but looking from the outside, I've talked to people before and it's incredible. It's, it's really amazing what we're doing here. And a lot of other states on the East Coast and Gulf of Mexico, I mean, they are, they, they, when they are looking at their own coastal master plans or they are envisioning something, they look to us. And uh, again, I mean, with pride, I can say, I mean, we, we really have been kind of leading the way. Can I ask a, a follow-up question, and which is, uh, if when you look out there at the other states on the American shoreline that ha are facing their own coastal management issues, do you look at any of them and say, you know, wow, they're really doing, uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm inspired by their job, uh, does it ever flip for you that you you see something? Hey, they're doing really they're really doing really great there. We'd like to do something like that in Louisiana. Um, so, I mean, again, all states are different, right? And they have their own issues. Um, no other state is facing land loss the way Louisiana is, and that's kind of where I think it drives us and the urgency is there. Um, but the answer is yes, no. Think... <laughs> <laughs> the answer is just a straight up no. Louisiana's Louisiana is in a class of its own, ladies and gentlemen. It's just that simple. Yes, right. Absolutely. In a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, I, th I think a lot of states are. I think what's unique about Louisiana, though, is how we are planning for it in a cohesive manner, right? We're not just looking at coastal re restoration as a science experiment or looking at ecosystem uh, but we are looking at coastal resilience. We are looking at climate adaptability. So we're looking at jobs. We're looking at the economy of the state that's reliant on our coastal resources. Um, and really, I mean, I think there are a lot of states kind of doing it. And what's, what's been great is now a lot of states have their coastal resilience officer and they have an office of coastal resilience, which really wasn't there before. Um, but what we do is we are tying it into a holistic management, uh, you know, the sophistication of that level. It's, it's just great because we're looking at climate initiative. Um, the, you know, we just came out with the climate initiative report. Uh, we're looking at it from a watershed management perspective. So all this kind of comes together uh, in Louisiana. And I would, again, I'm not saying this other states are not doing it, uh, but I think what yeah. uh, needs to be done is kind of looking at it from a very holistic, uh, a larger view perspective. Yeah. That I, you look at everything together and not just piece by piece. Um, you know, I'm just, this show is just firing me up, Peter. I am firing <laughs> on all cylinders. <laughs> but let me, let me, you know, I have to say, because uh, in, the, in my mind, I'm like trying to think of what other states out there, what they're going through. And yeah. one thing that I will say, California, this managed retreat business. 
And to do these diversions that you have here, you need space. You do need land. And um, this union uh, diversion, to put it in perspective, is about the, the area where this water would go is about halfway between Baton Rouge and uh, the city of New Orleans along I-10 there. With Peter, we drove that. We drove right yep. through there. And it really, I mean, it is swamp. I think we saw an alligator driving through. <laughs> I'm oh, not surely, kidding. Yeah, no, it's it's full-blown, uh, yeah. Marsh, and I think you need that, space. That, yeah, you need you space need, to you need, do this. You need space, and saltwater intrusion is a risk to uh, the bra certain environments, and the freshwater is a positive in the right area. But I really think, uh, Dr. Carr, you're correct. I mean, I, I think Louisiana is the leading state, uh, and it has to do with the institutional structures. The two things I think that the state is ahead on one, the institutional management and decision making structures that have been built, the CPRA, and the integration of the community of experts in the nonprofit community and the federal level all coming together under this uh, coastal master plan that the state regularly updates and then funded incredibly well. There's more than $50 billion in project money uh, that is being managed in Louisiana. They're just ahead of everybody. And if you look at Florida, which has significant issues, you just don't see the comprehensive uh, thought process evolving. They're still pecking around the edges. They're still trying to deal with uh, harmful algal blooms, but not really talking to the ag industry and talking about nutrient loading. They're just not quite capable. Um, they're not ready I, to bite the bullet. They're not ideologically. They're not open to that. It's going to cost. It's going to cost too much. What is what yeah, you're saying? And they're just not ready. They're to do nibbling it. on the edges of the problems in Florida, uh, mm -hmm. by and large. I, I, you know, with the exception of, I would say the the Everglades management, which is a federal effort. But I think Louisiana is the leading coastal management uh, state in the country uh, in, in a bunch of ways. That's why we, we love we love learning uh, what y'all are doing and, and how you're doing it. So, uh, you know, blue ribbon. I'm going to go. <laughs> I'm going to go with the blue ribbon is awarded by it's the American gold. Shoreline. <laughs> the gold star. You get how many stars? It's You get five. I think it's. Uh, wow. But uh, what an honor it is. But Devani, I think talk to us a little bit about this, about the relationship between um, the environmental and nonprofit community and the major decision makers uh, when it comes right down to it, the CPRA, the Corps of Engineers. Uh, in some states, there's hostility. In some states, there's not respect between the nonprofit community and state and federal leaders. Uh, I just don't get that feeling in Louisiana. Uh, talk to us about how EDF and the other organizations you work with fit into the overall decision-making process. Do you guys feel respected and listened to? Just over the years, and over the years, that respect has also grown. Um, I think one of the unique um, unique uh, features is probably how we look at environmental management. It's not either or, or, right? So we're looking at habitat, but we're also looking at coastal communities. We are considering a balance. So we know the reality of, yeah, their industries. But we also know that we have to protect the habitat for actually some of the other uh, economies to go forward. So I think we're not just saying like stop everything right. and you know just focus on the environment, but we are more realistic about it. And I think that's really why 
we're respected and people listen to us because we are looking at it from both perspectives and not just, you know, kind of saying that this is what you should do, but we try to gather that information, the uh, institutional knowledge and a lot of people who, you know, would we, as we say, lay people, so to speak, I mean, we don't consider them as lay people because they've been living in this land, they've been fishing and they've been, you know, their whole cultural heritage. I mean, it's all based on the habitat and the ecosystem around us. And they know a lot. And we, we just cannot say, okay, this is the way you're going to do it because it never works, right? Yep, yep, yep. So uh, I really think because of this, um, because of this, the nonprofit community here is so strong. They're advocates, but they're also advocates for the stakeholders, the people, the communities, but they're also advocates for the scientists and, you know, the environmental um, know-how. So it's it kind of comes together in that sense. And I feel that uh, maybe in other places, that's the difference is, you know, we, we are kind of part of the stakeholder community here. Yep. I, you know, I see it more and more. The Social Coast Forum that Tyler and I were huge fans of um, hasn't been held because of the pandemic for a few years, but was really about this connection uh, between the professional organizations and class of people who deal with these complex issues and the local communities and the role of the local communities. Uh, it's incredibly important that that connection be strong and clear. Um, and we are seeing it more and more Tyler, around the country, I think. Well, and and it's a great move. Well, it's I think it's actually the only move um, because the only way that we can advance big, huge, you know, like pr projects that are going to impact potentially millions of people, yeah, is to have a grassroots bottom up consensus that a action is necessary, and that B, the actions that are taking place are reasonable and going like going to have positive results. And what we have watched as various ambitious planning projects have occurred around the American shoreline from, I mentioned Boston earlier and New York, and we've talked about Miami and of course, New Orleans and Texas, where we're going to turn our attention to in a couple minutes. Uh, and, and the West, everywhere, everywhere, uh, there is an enormous amount of um, t consideration and uh, opacity is I guess I guess opacity is the word I'm, I mean it's just difficult you people we're, we're not accustomed we're learning how to make these investments of adaptation uh, how to look into the future trust the data look at these computer models yeah like what Dr. Carr and, and these folks from Tulane have put together and trust them and you know this is this, this is kind of a new skill for for society and specifically in America for our society for our democracy which is you know can we do this can we fund this can we will politicians use these things as footballs for their own mm -hmm. benefit uh, yeah. at the expense of actually getting them done yeah these are the questions that I think will really be yeah will will separate uh, the wheat from the chaff so to speak going forward. Yeah, I think it remains to be seen. You hope that these processes, what I love about it, uh, Dr. Carr, is that, as you say, the scope of what's being considered and how you define success and the goal of the project is broader now. It's not simply about let's try to reduce flooding. You're talking about let's improve the habitat and communities 
and fisheries and environmental health in the Lake Pontchartrain region. Let's look at these diversions as positive benefits to other coastal resource areas. Let's do it in a way that's beneficial to communities. This kind of more complex, multi-tiered uh, approach uh, to the benefits of potential investments in, in this type, uh, it, it's, that's the magic of it, in my opinion, that uh, you guys bring this holistic view. Absolutely. Um, and again, uh, I, I, my intention is not to say the other states are not doing their best. <laughs> uh, we'll say but, it. You guys um... are doing the best. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, let me tell us, I did, you know, we're coming to the end of this, but I, I, I wanted to, uh, if you wouldn't mind, uh, talk a little bit more, explain to our audience a little bit more about the areas that if this project were undertaken, and as you say, it may be a decade, uh, it's not even on the drawing board in terms of a design at this point. There's no uh, design construction funding in place at this moment. Uh, but the Union Freshwater Diversion or the AMA Diversion, uh, redirecting water, tell us about the habitats that will benefit from an increase in uh, freshwater inflow. Uh, introduce us to these areas and the critters. Um, so these would be primarily with these two diversions, um, what we call the Upper Barataria Basin. It's one of the most fragile, uh, critical habitats um, in Louisiana. And the other one is the Morocco Swamp Area, which is uh, coastal forests and it's, it's a freshwater habitat. Um, so we're not just talking about the vegetation, the marsh vegetation, but um, fisheries, freshwater fisheries. We have, you know, the, the, the lifestyle of people here. I mean, it's rec recreational hunting as well. So you have uh, ducks and uh, alligators, like you said earlier. Um, so these areas are um, critical habitats for birds. Um, there's a lot of rookeries in these areas and um, they, they support um, all this flora and fauna around the state. Um, so these, uh, these kind of projects will bring the fresh water, keep the salt water out. Um, but in the meantime, they're also bringing in, like I said earlier, some sedimentation, which will help um, create these uh, marshes, which are again, crucial habitats for a lot of uh, critters. Uh, yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, this is a part of the Cajun, Louisiana coast, deep-rooted culture that's everything from the shrimp to the oysters to the ducks, all of it. And I'm let me tell you, I love it. I uh, <laughs> hope I hope that we can sustain that aspect of the Louisiana coast uh, for for generations. I think it's just absolutely uh, iconic. Uh, shifting our attention, uh, I also know that, Devyani, you are working on another project uh, with EDF, um, and this involves, this is through the National Academy of Sciences, and it's EDF has teamed up with the Galveston Bay Foundation, and Texas A&M, Peter, we're coming over to Texas. My alma modern. Sliding over uh, the border, and um, this has to do with the petrochemical infrastructure around Houston and uh, how uh, the risk of these, these areas spilling and potentially creating just tons of environmental uh, damage. Devyani, can you talk us through what, 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 what are you guys working on here? What's the deal? 
So um, this project is, like you said, it's uh, we're working with Texas A&M, um, the Galveston Bay Foundation, EDF, and then we have um, other uh, advisory uh, people in the advisory role from Rice University, so on and so forth. Um, the whole goal of this project is to look at petrochemical facilities. There's a big density of these facilities in Texas, Louisiana. So this project, even though the case study is based in Texas, the Galveston Bay, um, is very applicable to Louisiana as well. Um, so when we start looking at the history of storms and these petrochemical industries, we've seen since Katrina, there have been major spills during these storms. And just in the last couple of years um, with Hurricane Ida and Hurricane Laura in Louisiana, Harvey in um, Texas, uh, the, the, this risk has increased uh, many folds. So if this risk was just to, you know, contain to these areas, that would be one thing. But the risk actually spills over, so to speak, to the seafood industry. Uh, we have found contaminants in, you know, the fish and uh, the other, um, you know, like looking at oysters. And <clears throat> so the part of the study is sort of, first finding out what kind of contamination is actually entering the food chain. And secondly, is connecting those back to the kind of petrochemical industries which are most at risk because of flooding, um, either from storm flooding or from uh, intense uh, rainfall. So the project is uh, kind of based in, we call it five aims, which are kind of five um, parts of the project. The first is, like I said, looking at the fisheries, um, getting samples from fish. Um, second is modeling and looking at these, um, the petrochemical facilities that are most at risk. So that would depend on the kind of chemicals, um, the flood situation, like are they in flood zones or you know how much of a risk they are, how vulnerable they are. Thirdly is just there, uh, you know, have they been cited in the past? Do they have any kind of uh, business continuity plans? Do they have any kind of spill plans, uh, emergency plans? Um, so putting all these factors together is we are looking at ranking these facilities. Hmm. And then finally, um, the aim three, four, and five, let me call them, is again then focusing on the communities. So which communities are actually going to get impacted, not just from the flood, but from the contaminated flood. So the goal is to sort of focus on that contamination. So air, water, soil, these kind of contaminations. Wow. Um, what my focus is as part of the study is looking at the uh, nature-based features and how we can use those um, features to reduce the uh, risk for these areas. So, you know, looking at uh, wetlands, marshes, looking at barrier islands uh, around these areas to reduce the flood. Um, so yeah, the study is manifold and it's still ongoing, but um, again, we're using models like DELT3D, like we talked about earlier. We're looking at other storm surge models. We're looking at models that look at um, rainfall risk. Um, and then creating these uh, features, like a suite of features, which would best address in a very economic, optimized way, um, best address these risks. Now we know that for certain storms and certain you know, uh, categories of storms or the strength of storms, 
these uh, features would not perhaps be as effectual as actually putting gray infrastructure in these areas, which the core is doing anyway as part of the coastal study. But um, what we're looking at is more sort of frequent, but um, you know, impactful hmm. flood events, which are, again, they create the damage, but then with these features, they can be mitigated. What an important uh, initiative and an important discussion. Uh, the Galveston-based system is the focus of a great deal of attention in the coastal management universe and coastal engineering. Uh, as you mentioned, the Corps of Engineers is currently in the process of developing the Coastal Spine Project, a $30 billion-plus uh, decade-long, multi-decade initiative to uh, reduce the risk of damage, storm surge, particularly uh, on the petrochemical facilities that surround Galveston Bay. Um, our good friend Jim Blackburn at the Speed Center at Rice University is a major proponent of reducing this risk, and the Speed Center is a participant in the broad design uh, elements of the Coastal Spine Project, the federal uh, project that is moving forward, it seems. But there's a huge recognition in, I think, in the Galveston Bay system in, in Houston, uh, the energy capital of the U.S., they call it, uh, that the uh, petrochemical facilities and the risk to the environment of a catastrophic uh, event in the Bay is, would be enormous. And uh, it's, as you say, it's important because it's not just about Galveston Bay. The petrochemical and oil and gas industry facilities along the Gulf of Mexico, particularly Texas, Louisiana, are huge and um, sea level rise, increasing risks. Boy, it's scary to contemplate uh, what could happen if the, uh, the the wrong event hits in the right way. Um, how much damage could be done? Correct. Um, you know, and this risk is just increasing day by day. So part of our study is not we're just not looking at only the uh, historical data and historical events, but we are actually projecting to the future considering climate change, considering increasing uh, intense, uh, intensity of rainfall, um, increasing temperature. I mean, we're kind of looking at it from a holistic um, viewpoint. We're building scenarios, looking at different you know, projections from, um, uh, from IPCC and then the new um, NOAA study that just came out. Um, so yeah, we, we're building for the future. We're designing for the future. Um, and I think this is something which is very necessary. And, you know, it's not just the communities that are affected, but we're seeing that these areas are surrounded by communities which are uh, low income. They might be more BIPOC communities. And we see that they're disproportionately impacted by these disasters. So um, one of our major goals is actually to be looking at a more inclusive, more environmental justice focused um, you know, when we're looking at these modeling projects. So uh, again, we, we will be talking to communities. I mean, we have a huge uh, grassroots level effort that we're planning and we are working with the Galveston Bay Foundation for this um, uh, project. But yeah, I think it, it's definitely now we have to look at people as well. So that's been our goal for this project as well. Absolutely, you know, the most important uh, and motivating part, I think, uh, as as uh, we cover these projects, Peter, it's these are people projects at the end of the day. They always are. I mean, yep. they're done by us and they're done ultimately for us. And it's just about the equity and how that shakes out. Um, 
I do. I would love to. This is Peter. Uh, Peter's a big golfer. Uh, and I'm going to use a golf analogy. Use a golf analogy. I'm glad I said big, but not good. I think that's a good, that's good, good choice Peter, you, of good I'm, adjective. Well, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm thinking about our uh, green and nature-based infrastructure golf bag. Uh, what hmm. clubs do we have in this bag? Uh, I know we. Ha- I'm, I'm going to brainstorm off the hmm. top of my head. We have sand dunes. We have like vegetation on sand dunes. We have oyster beds. We have marshes. We have wetlands. Uh, Devyani, when when considering a chemical hazard and risk like this, what clubs are we going to be reaching for here? Um, I'm I'm just curious to know. I mean, when you're when ultimately the goal is to lay out some options of green and nature based infrastructure based mitigation and uh, solutions. What what might we be thinking? Um, So we will be looking at different scales. So, uh, you know, kind of starting from the larger uh, scale, like coastal projects, which would be barrier islands, like you said, the dunes, sand dunes, uh, beach nourishments, which the core is doing as part of their... It's like a driver. Yeah. um, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, wetlands and, you know, all of those you mentioned. However, we're also looking at more neighborhood scale projects as well so hmm. you know when you have this contamination kind of having these areas as sponges so you have retention detention ponds um looking at smaller scale but more effective i mean we, we're considering a whole suite you're looking at rain gardens you're looking at everything in its own way can contribute and some of these things are not even expensive i mean we're not talking about you know even thousands of millions of dollars these are all neighborhood projects which would actually benefit the neighborhood other communities um aesthetic uh increase their property values of these areas um as well as help with the mitigating at least the smallest sized floods which are again frequent but um, you know, they do cost uh, or they create damage. The good work of the Environmental Defense Fund and so many other organizations that are trying to tackle these complex uh, problems on the American shoreline. Uh, if folks are interested in following along with your work at EDF, uh, how can they keep up with your work, uh, Dr. Carr? Um, the best way is to go to our website. <laughs> we have um, uh, project-focused uh, pages. We have blogs. Um, we're very prolific with blogs, so uh, please check them out, and you will see a lot of them are linked to other studies that are in various areas, you know, and how we connect with other parts of our organization, with the oceans folks and with the climate change folks. So I think that would be a great way to kind of look out. And then we do come out with, uh, you know, like for Louisiana work, uh, Delta Dispatch, that's, that's like a fantastic uh, opportunity to go and learn more about Louisiana and the work we're doing here. Um, uh, Restore the Mississippi River Delta Coalition's website. Um, we have projects, we have, you can learn about the staff, you can learn about their uh, background and interests. So th- there's a lot of resources, uh, you know, you can look at and, uh, and of course, news. <laughs> We're right now, yeah, coastal news like, today you know, we a very happening time, so to speak, in coastal restoration. So, you know, we're trying to get the word out there that how urgent this is and how much we can do and we're doing, but there's still a lot to do. 
Ladies and gentlemen, it is Dr. Devani Carr. She is the Senior Manager and Scientist at the Environmental Defense Fund's office in New Orleans uh, and an expert on one of the most amazing uh, initiatives out there, the management of the Lower Mississippi River Delta area and how to keep it healthy, how to make it economically strong and how to make it support our communities, reduce the risks we all face from climate change and sea level rise. What a great coastal professional. Thank you so much, Dr. Carr, for sharing your insights with us and our audience uh, on the American Shoreline Park podcast. We sure appreciate it. Thank you, and likewise.